Matthew chapter 21 this morning, verses 18 through 22, will be our primary text. Matthew 21, 18 through 22. The title of this morning's message is The Fig in Figurative, if you will. That's probably me being clever in a way that I appreciate and no one else really thinks is all that clever. The Fig in Figurative. There is a story of a fig tree that is cursed in this passage, and it is absolutely incredible to notice how figurative this story is in the light of the context, both immediately in the narrative context and covenantally as well. That will be the sum of our study this morning, so stand with me if you would, and let us read this text before we consider it in some depth today. Again, this is Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. Follow me as I read. In the morning... As he, that is Christ, was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Verse 20, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. This is one of those brief and curious stories at first glance that we might miss in its weight and significance in too quickly reading through it without asking ourselves the question, why does this story, this miracle, this interesting event occur at this place in Matthew's Gospel? Why in the limited space available is the author diligent to record this particular event? Was it that Jesus, being a man, was hungry and frustrated and discouraged upon finding that his hopes of the tree producing him fruit uh, were dashed, and therefore, in a fit of rage or frustration, he cursed the tree. No, that doesn't seem to match up, does it? With what we know of Christ and his sovereignty, both God, uh, God in flesh, that is, Christ not only shared in our humanity, he did not set his divinity aside in the sense that some might want to say. So he cannot look at this through the short-sighted lens of our own passions and experience and think, well, I can understand why Christ would be frustrated. Your mouth is watering for a fig and finding none. If I had the power to do something about it, I might kick the tree down or something, so to speak. That's a short-sighted reading and almost a blasphemous one indeed. But when we look a little closer, asking the question, therefore, why does this, or asking the question, if that is wrong, then why does this appear in the text? And what could be the translation and significance? I would beg you to consider the context in so doing. A closer look at the contextual significance of this event in the Gospels provides a striking emphasis for prophetic, messianic, and gospel themes. There are prophetic, messianic, and gospel themes all sewed into this idea of fig tree. Um, An imagery study of fig tree itself, just that term, will yield you some great riches. Just for further note and study on the excerpt section of the website this week, Lord willing, I'll have updated a study along those lines. 
Where does the term fig tree and figs appear in the Old Testament Scriptures? We'll have only a time to study or to touch on perhaps one or two places in the Old Covenant. That might be significant to our study this morning. But I think you'll find as you read through those that this incident takes on a whole new meaning. These, uh, uh, this study, that is, these Old Testament references of fig tree in Scripture remind us of something that is unique to the Bible. And that is the proprietary nature of biblical literary devices. Another way to say that more simply is the Bible has a unique language. There are in its imagery, in its metaphors, in the way it explains things, a unique culture. Proprietary meaning it is owned by the Bible and exclusively to the Bible. There are certain things that are difficult to understand unless we see them as a certain language category in Scripture. And this is one of those times. As we look at these places in Scripture where certain uh, prominent symbols come to the fore, we can recognize them perhaps more easily in ones that are more familiar to us. Think of the star of Bethlehem. Think of the stars and the celestial language that is recorded in the Old Covenant. Oftentimes, Nations and authorities are symbolized by these heavenly bodies or beings. Think about the temple, the tabernacle, the place of God's dwelling. We've mentioned these in the Psalms of late. Mount Zion, thy holy hill, the refuge of the Most High. Uh, these are, uh, image, this is imagery of security and assurance and a unique place of union between God and man. A rendezvous point, a place of fellowship where the otherwise disqualified from the presence of God are welcomed into His favor. And so this idea of temple then unfolds throughout Scripture. We get all the way to the book of Revelation, and there's glorious themes, and, the, and those glorious themes are unveiled. We see the temple uh, being transcended by the entirety of the new heavens and the new earth. And now the dwelling place of God and man is indistinguishable. There is no place, that is to say, in the new heavens and new earth for the redeemed believer that is outside of His presence. So the language of temple in Scripture is unique to the Bible. It's a proprietary literary device. I submit to you in the same way fig tree this morning. We'll unpack that as we go on. Now for others, for others who are not equipped because they do not know the Lord or because they're blindsided or short-sighted by their sin and by their finitude and by their mere human nature, they may think of the Bible not as a spectacular book, nothing special, but might interpret it as something else. And for those who are so nearsighted, according to 2 Peter 1.9, I'll remind you of our text last week, that they are blind. What, interest, what might interest them in a passage like this is so-called synoptic issues or contradictions, they might say, between other passages in the Gospels. That is, if you dig into this passage a little, you'll find it's paralleled in Mark's Gospel, for instance, with slight shades of difference. To head off this objection at the pass and to equip you to be able to defend your faith, let me just say in the words of one commentator, Albert Barnes, the following. When we consider, let me briefly say this in introduction to his quote, when we consider the different shades that the different gospel authors give to particular events, consider what Barnes says. He says, such circumstantial variations where there is no positive contradiction go greatly to confirm the truth of a narrative. They show that the writers were honest men and did not conspire to deceive the world. 
What do we see testified to here in the gospel record considering its multifaceted nature even in the record? What we're considering is real events in real history recorded by real men and multiple attestations. You have perspectives from more than one eyewitness. If the events and the transmission of the biblical truth was consolidated to one person and one experience, you would have great reason to doubt the veracity of that authority claim, that truth claim. We mentioned briefly last week the nature of false religions often falls into this category. Consider Joseph Smith who said, I uh, was given golden tablets by the angel Moroni and I looked into this pebble that I found in a well. And then I was able to get, oh, the knowledge that this is the final uh, thought and revelation from God to man in order for you to live your life. And you can't go back and verify it. It's one account. Consider another uh, as we look at uh, the Islamic tradition, for instance. There was a time in Islamic history where multiple Korans were all consolidated, and I believe the man was named Uthman, and he burned all the rest. And so the one attestation, they all go back in their family tree to that one point. Now, the Bible is not, is not uh, such is not the case in the Word of God. The Word of God, though, delivered through, mediated through, if you will, men who wrote down. It is attested to by multiple authors. The very thing the humanist and the unbeliever would say is a disqualifier for the nature of Scripture indeed is exactly the opposite. Why am I saying this to you by way of introduction today? Because we live in a day of, of, a, we live in a day of rabid skepticism. I, it seems to me that the culture is very interest, in, interested in undermining the authority of the Word of God because they want to escape the just and inarguable mandates of a holy God, their creator, to whom they must answer to on the final day of judgment. They do not want to do that. So if they can undermine the authority of the word of God, if they can say that it's less than God speaking in a verifiably sound way from heaven to man to give an account and so that he might be in right standing with him, if they can say it's anything less, then they can be justified in their sin. This is one of those places you might find the naysayers turning to to shake your faith. I'm here to show you by the Scriptures and hopefully with the Spirit's help that indeed this is a place to strengthen your faith. Because when you look at the testimony of greater Scripture, we see great cause to be moved to adoration of God and the unique way that He preserves His Holy Word. Let me tell you this morning, I thought, this is a confession, I thought that these few verses, 18 through 22, didn't contain enough content for a single sermon. How short-sighted was I? Indeed, this morning, as we scratch the surface of what could possibly be gleaned from this text, I admit to you that there is more here than could be covered in one sermon. There's not enough time in one sermon for what ought to interest us in Matthew 21, 18 through 22. So let us consider its greater significance, starting with reading glasses, if you will, to look closely, and then to use an illustration, let's look through more panoramic views. We take a few steps back through a wide-angle lens of the rest of Scripture, touching on a few points of redemptive history. Here's a heading for you. Understanding the cursed fig tree according to the immediate context, number one, the narrative context, number two, and covenantal context, number three. Understanding the cursing of the fig tree by Christ at this point in the gospel according to its immediate context, Secondly, it's narrative context. And thirdly, it's covenantal context. First of all, immediate context. Consider this. This tree, not fruit-bearing, yet having leaves, existed to show the purpose and the glory of Christ. 
This tree was sovereignly ordained in God's providence to sprout at a particular time years prior to Christ's journey to show the glory and the authority of the Messiah. This was no accident. It was planned before time began. And though the, though the nature of this narrative may appear incidental, it is indeed not. Calvin's insight is helpful at this point. But as hunger, he says, but as hunger was troublesome to him, namely Christ, in uh, commenting on his humanity, Christ was hungry as a man, but as hunger was troublesome to him, according to the feeling of the flesh, he, that is Christ, determined to overcome it by an opposite affection, that is, by a desire to promote the glory of the Father, as he elsewhere says, my meat is to do the will of my Father, John four thirty four. Do you remember during the temptation of Jesus Christ, where 40 days he has gone without food and water in the wilderness? And there comes a time where all he has to do is buy the devil's deal. He has to buy into the devil's deal and he will be promised nourishment, refreshment, food and water, as it were. Jesus resists the temptation to act impetuously in extreme hunger. Now, as we consider that, this is a man tested by a 40-day trial under extreme circumstances. Are we to assume that presumably one day's hunger would move Christ in frustration to curse a tree just because there wasn't figs on it? Absolutely not. So what are we seeing here? Instead of a man responding to his hunger, we are seeing God in flesh responding to an event prepared beforehand for him to walk in to demonstrate his glory and to demonstrate his authority. Christ had higher purpose in this earth than mere survival as a man. His purpose was to seek and to save that which was lost. His purpose was to glorify himself through the evidence of his messiahship and divinity through his multiple miracles over and over again. And this is one of them. Calvin is careful to make the point that we are not seeing the uh, angry or frustrated, impetuous response of a hungry man. But instead, we are seeing the response of a man. We are seeing the action of one whose will or whose meat, that is, uh, he is most driven by. The core influence and motivator in his being is to do the will of the Father who sent him. Thus, this incident serves to show the purpose and also shows that creation serves at the pleasure of Christ. This incident serves to demonstrate the dominion of Christ. Think of the language of greater scripture briefly with me. Christ is described in Paul's writings as the second Adam. Christ is not under the thumb of creation. He is not denied substance and sustenance because creation won't give him what he needs. No, creation is under the thumb, if you will, of Christ. He created it in the first place. Thus, when we see His action in this regard, Christ is taking dominion over His creation for His glory. All trees clap their hands as worship to the Lord. The birds of the field, or the birds of the air and the beasts of the field bow before Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith and the creator of everything that we can see in this known universe. And this is one example of that fact. His glory is seen in this exchange, in this uh, incident. 
This is not evidence of frustration, but instead His glory and authority. The incarnate Son is demonstrating, if you will, anti-paganism. You see, man, limited to his resources in his sinful nature, has been wont for ages prior to this one and even up to the present day to exchange the glory of God for creation. We feel that we are under the whim and sway of nature. Man's conception of ultimate authority and who is God over him has oftentimes all throughout history been corrupted. We are subjects of nature. We are under the thumb of nature, if you will. So man would create ideas of God in his mind that are in accord with nature. He is just basically a pawn in this game of whether or not the a rain will come and let, and let his crops go, grow, whether or not the sun will rise and give him warmth, whether or not global warming is true and it will eradicate the human race. We uh, need to protect the environment at all costs, we are told. Even this morning we commented on how stories of obliterating our own race through abortion and the like are overshadowed by a panda giving birth in a zoo or by a lion being killed in Africa. Why is this? It's because man exchanges the glory of God for nature. He does not see God as transcendent over nature. He sees himself as a slave to the process of nature. In this incident right here, we see anti-paganism. We see a tree bowing to the authority of its maker. We see Jesus Christ demonstrating that He is the creator of this world and at His point in choosing, He will judge it. He will fold it in on itself into the new heavens and new earth. And what has been corrupted by sin will be reformed. And the palingenesia, that Greek word for regenerated earth, will take manifest. Uh, uh, will be manifest in our experience even as it is prophesied from eternity past. So let us note that we serve a God who is over nature. The closest thing that the Bible has, incidentally, to a picture of us being a slave to the forces of, and chaos of nature is the sea. We see in the Old Testament the sea is a formidable, unpredictable force. Yet do we see anywhere in Scripture where we we are instructed to worship the sea, to fear the sea? No, we are to fear God. Who is God in Scripture? He is the one who speaks, and the Messiah did this. And by a word, He calmed the sea. And the waves that the disciples feared would be their fate were still before the voice of the one who made them in the first place. When we go to the book of Revelation, we see a place, an environment where there is no sea there. What is the author saying? There are no chaotic forces to control man. Instead, there is the perfect situation of all things in subject to and under the dominion of an imperfect unity and accord with the maker and the creator of the earth and the sea and the fig tree and the birds and the beasts of the field. This is the purpose and pleasure of Christ served in this incident. This is His glory and authority manifest in even this immediate context. Let me make another note right here as we, uh, I, I did a little research on fig trees. Let me read to you again verse 18. In the morning, as He was returning to the city, He, Christ, became hungry and seeing the fig tree by the wayside, He went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And He said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. 
So just a brief internet study on the nature of fig trees in the Near East. Easton's dictionary was helpful. Bible dictionary was helpful for me on this. And I'll have another blurb and excerpts this week where you can read a bit more. I am told that this uh, species of tree, and, and normally it produces its fruit before it produces its leaves. So according to a regular normative created order, if a fig tree has leaves, it ought to have fruit. So this is a picture I would submit to you then. It's significant of something. Jesus approaches a tree who has leaves but has no fruit. Ordinarily, the fruit of the fig tree appears before its foliage breaks forth from the branches. The leaves then were a pretentious and deceptive display in this illustrative instance. In other words, this illustrates something. If a fig tree has leaves and no fruit, it is something like an analogy I would submit to you to show a pretentious and deceptive display, but having no substance. This is significant in the greater gospel. Turn back with me to Matthew 7. This tree in the physical is serving to illustrate and to add clarity and extra weight to a concept, a principle that Christ has already declared in His first great discourse in this gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll recall these words in Matthew seven fifteen. Christ says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Notice the analogy he uses, verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? There's a reference to figs there. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, verse 17, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a (coughs) diseased tree bear good fruit. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This event of the cursing of the fig tree further illustrates this principle. This event serves as a helpful expansion of this principle of fruit bearing. You will know them by the fruit. We are called to inspect fruit and we are called to have discernment, both in our lives, certainly with those who purport to be teachers, and even in others. Therefore, we are better equipped to exhort each other daily to fruit inspection, if you will, so that we may not become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But make sure the fruit-bearing, the fruitfulness of our life is substantively connected to our profession of faith. Uh, This incident, though, shows us that some signs of life apparent in confessing believers, in those who associate with Christianity, prove to be a superficial display. Have you ever met someone or had someone in your experience or maybe you've been this type of believer in the past, quote-unquote, Christian in the past? Have you ever seen someone that was as on fire for God as you could possibly imagine? Boy, I wish I could love the Lord as much as they appear to. Later on, after a number of years, you see them show up on Facebook and all the evidence of apostasy is there. Drunken revelries, revelries, parties, multiple relationships, and totally abandoning the righteousness of God for the whim and the carnal desires of man. Every one of us, I'll bet you in this room, can testify to that. I had a friend in college, and he was he would get late passes. He would stay out late, and he would get late passes to practice piano and learn worship songs. Others of us would get late passes to study because we had procrastinated so much we needed to pull an all-nighter, needed to be at the library, things like that. But no, he was different. This guy, he was super spiritual. 
It's incredible the level of apparent fruit that he displayed. He would get late passes and into the night, all by himself, he would be playing the piano and worshiping the Lord. Two years or so after I graduated college, and uh, his name came across my radar, and I happened to be able to find his phone number. I wonder how my friend's doing, and I called him. I tracked him down in Hollywood. He had been doing commercials. He had just shown up in a B a movie, you know, really explicit scenes, almost pornographic nature. And I said, man, what happened? This is not the guy I knew in school. And he said, let me tell you something. When I was in uh, high school, I went out for basketball. All my friends were in basketball. And I decided I'd be the best basketball player I knew. It was like then youth group started. And in youth group, I went out to be on fire for God. And so I, I tried to be the best youth group on fire uh, a guy that I knew. So then I went to Bible college. And I went out for worship leading. And I tried to be the best worship leader that I knew. And he's like, basically what I've done my whole life, I've never heard this kind of honesty from an apostate before, to be honest with you. Basically what I did my whole life is I surrounded myself with an identity group and I just tried to go out for it. I tried to be the best in that group. Well, the leaves were on his tree, but there was no fruit. He showed something for a time that appeared to say, oh, there must be fruit, there's leaves. Fig trees have leaves before fruit. But you see how the analogy is helpful? There is a difference between uh, superficial, superficial, attestation and affiliation with Jesus Christ and substantial fruit. This, brothers and sisters, ought to move us to fear. Let us inspect first our own souls. Are you demonstrating leaves or figs? Are you demonstrating substantial fruit? What is substantial fruit? Last week we were in 2 Peter and the author of that great book. That those dying words to his church, he said, be diligent to supplement your faith with virtue, godliness, self-control. What are these? And in other places are recorded as a fruit of the Spirit. Brotherly affection and love. These are the things that are substantial fruit. Let us take seriously this illustration so that when the time comes for the tree to answer to its creator, it will not be cut down, even as John the Baptist said, now the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. It will not become fodder for the fire, as Jesus Christ said in fulfillment of the prophecy, that every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and burned. It will not be gathered like the tares who are separated from the wheat and the final day just to light the fires with God's judgment and burn for all eternity. Let us consider diligently the message here because there will come a time when those who have not borne substantial fruit will hear this voice, and it will be a fearful, ultimate, horrific voice indeed, or at least message to them. May no fruit ever come from you again, and they, like the fig tree, will wither, never again to take root. Finally, this morning under the first point in immediate context, there's a message of application from lesser to greater. The explanation or an application that Christ uh, uses in context is that uh, similar to another point in Scripture, I'll have you turn there, in fact, John chapter 1, this message of the fig tree, what is evident in the fig tree is just a little taste of what you can expect in superlative measure. Reading again first in Matthew 21, 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled. This moved the disciples They were surprised, amazed. They cried out to Christ, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Verse 21, Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be t- <coughs> excuse me, taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now the apparent uh, ordinary nature of this miracle, after all, it's just a tree, right? This is a man who's fed 5,000 out of thin air. Well, this serves actually as an illustration as well. If you are amazed, that is, the power of the Messiah to curse one single physical fig tree, just stand back and watch. The Lord has works prepared in advance for His church to walk in. And through the apostolic testimony and the continual great commission that is evident in your life, believer, if you are faithful to it, you will see, Christ promises, mountains being thrown into the sea. It will happen. The promise is, for these listening to Christ, is that whatever they ask in prayer, they will receive if they have faith. Notice the similarity of this incident to John 1, 48 through 51. This is where Nathanael is called by Christ. And notice there's a fig tree in view here as well. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus' premonition Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree, knowing where he was, being able to have eyesight, that transcendent physical limitation showing him to be the Messiah, was enough to convince Nathaniel that this man was the Son of God, King of Israel. He called him Rabbi. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, that is, Jesus answered Nathaniel, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see the argument or the message, the illustration from the lesser to the greater? What Christ does to demonstrate his authority and his power and with respect to a fig tree is going to be exponentially increased such that we don't have room in our consciousness to fathom or imagine. Another fig tree incident sets up the same scenario in the same situation as if to say, in common slang, you ain't seen nothing yet. And this really is the message here. That Christ is showing Himself to be authoritative and powerful, but it's just a small taste, an infinitesimal display an infinitesimal display of His glory and power. And so as we see in the text here, we can draw great encouragement as those disciples listening on that His power will continually be made known and manifest throughout all history such that this incident will be multiplied in the testimony to His glory over and over and over again until for us, yes, even us, the heavens will be open one day and in glory we will see Him and we will know Him even as we are known. Secondly, this morning, major point, narrative context. Understanding the cursed fig tree according to the narrative context. I mentioned to you, first of all, we look at it with the reading glasses. 
Now let's uh, look at it with binoculars before we move to the telescope, if you will. We'll take a step back and look at this in a little bit more of its gospel context. First of all, in the narrative context, this uh, incident sets up the, a miracle-parable relationship. This is a precursor to what happens immediately after. Notice in the text with me, if you would, in verse 23. I'm sorry. Uh, there's this altercation with the Pharisees, verse 23 through 27. And then we get to verse 28, Matthew 21. What do you think? Jesus says, A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Now, I'll pause there because we'll consider this parable at a later time in depth. Just notice that Jesus cursing the fig tree is a precursor. It sets the stage for two parables that deal with plantings, both vineyards. And this one is the parable of the two sons. But there's a second one in the same chapter, verse 33. Here another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants. We continue to read again this language of plantings and vineyards and tending and stewardship. If we uh, assign all the appropriate categories to who do these figures and symbols represent, we see continuity in the record. What Jesus demonstrated by miracle, he is now revealing by parable, verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? Well, we've already seen what he's done to the fig tree. Now we see uh, his relationship to a vineyard tended by others, and we can get a little bit more of the emphasis there. They said to him, verse 20, uh, 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard, let out the vineyard to other tenants who give him the fruits in their seasons. So do you see here? The tree, the fig tree, did not give Jesus the fruit in its season, and it was cursed and was no more. There will be tenants of a vineyard, Christ is explaining the kingdom of God, who will fall into a similar category. They will not steward that over which they were given charge. They will not give him, that is, his fruits in their seasons. And what will happen? Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, here's the phrase, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, doing what? Producing its fruits. If you are like that fig tree, in other words, or if you fit into this parable, fruitless, then the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to another. To the one who falls in the stone, he will be broken at the one uh, and, when it, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So you see here that this, there is a relationship between the miracle and the parables. They emphasize Christ's authority and His power to judge. There is also a pairing here in the context then, in the narrative context, of vine and fig tree. And this, I submit to you, in redemptive historical language, is no accident. We'll see that a little greater in under our final point, but... The vine and fig tree picture is evidence of something, and it's, again, language, proprietary imagery used throughout Scripture. So just to whet your, whet your appetite for further study, when we see these things back-to-back in the Gospels, it's there to clarify, to emphasize, to highlight, and to underscore a truth. So let us dig diligently into the text to see what that may be. 
Secondly, under narrative context, there is a promise here that is repeated. Again, going back to the promise that Christ gives, verse 21, chapter 21. And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Turn back with me again for some more narrative context on this point to chapter uh, 17. In chapter 17, the disciples have tried to heal a man and, and they've been futile in their efforts. It says in verse 14, for instance, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy. On my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the water, into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked him. The demon came out instantly of him, came out of him. Uh, and the boy was healed instantly when the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. And here it is, the parallel. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So under narrative context, we see, after Jesus curses the fig tree, that there is a promise that is repeated. And here it's for emphasis. For emphasis, again, expansion and clarity, this promise of mountains being moved is echoed from the prior teachable moment that that situation I just read to you in chapter 17 represented. But now it is even more clearly in reference to uh, perhaps two things. That is, when Christ uses this, this language of mountain, connected with the promise that by your prayer of faith it will be cast into the sea, we see perhaps at least two things associated with it. What does a mountain represent, in other words? Number one, seemingly insurmountable circumstances. Number two, formidable authority claims. In the context of Matthew 21, right after Jesus says, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. There is an altercation with the uh, priests and elders, and they, they come to him and they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Mountains, again in Scripture, more proprietary imagery, uh, represent places of authority, high places, or places of mountains, where what people saw and envisioned as the controlling power in their life, supernatural authority, the highest authority, they saw them situated there. There is only one true high place, and that was represented by Mount Zion. But it was transcended, but Mount Zion was transcended in the living Christ. And he said, now, you don't worship you know, over here in Samaria, you don't worship in Jerusalem, but those who worship truly do so in spirit and in truth. Christ is the high place. He is the pinnacle. He is the apex. He is the authority. And so, anything lesser than him, any lesser mountain, be it a seemingly insurmountable circumstance or authority claim, cannot stand a chance. It will be thrown into the sea. One example in history. 
The temple, I am told, one face of it at this time was 600 feet tall. It was built by a self-serving potentate, uh, Herod the Great. For 46 years constructed this edifice, truly of its time, at least one of the wonders of the world. Josephus records that travelers would have to shield their eyes if the sun was just so, because of the glinting light off of the polished precious metals and the glowing white limestone on this mountain, Mount Zion. Well, that temple represented something. But that temple at this time didn't represent what it was truly called to represent, worship of the one true God. Otherwise, those patrons of the temple would have recognized Christ as their Messiah. So what was going to happen to this mountain? Well, if it did not repent, if it did not bow its knee to Christ, this mountain, figuratively speaking, would be broken down and cast into the sea. What happened in A.D. 70? History records that the stones of that great 46-year preeminent architectural project wonder of the world were absolutely decimated and destroyed. Later history records, and of course this is not canon, but I find it under a Julian the Apostate, a later Roman emperor, who so hated Christianity that he wanted to rebuild the temple because he thought it would be a slight to the Christian religion. If the sacrificial system of the old Judaic order was restored, that would mean that you Christians didn't have any substance. So they got together to put the stones to lay them again. And history records, I'm told that Julian the Apostate's own historian records fireballs coming out of the ground and consuming the workers and earthquakes repeatedly removing the stones. God has the authority and the power to tear down mountains. He can do it in the physical, and He can take His time. But everyone will come down. Whether it's the physical stones being removed, another amazing illustration is the city of Tyre, which is a picture in the Old Testament of man's uh, authority. He builds these big structures, and there's a prophecy that it would be destroyed. And sure enough, Alexander the Great was a power that was raised up by God's hand, And the very towers of Tyre and the buildings and the beautiful monument that they had created to this global power of uh, a a sound economy and enterprise was torn down. And the buildings themselves were used to build a causeway and a bridge remains to this day. Search Google and you can find pieces of column, you can pictures of pieces of column in the water. That mountain was torn down. Yesterday, my family and I We're in the cities, and we saw on the internet that there was going to be a protest at a mountain place in our society where the fires of Molech still rage, and by the millions, babies are sacrificed to a false god. And at that mega center of Planned Parenthood, where babies are systematically killed and destroyed, thousands and thousands and thousands per day. 4,000 plus believers gathered. We were privileged to be among them. I could not hold back the tears when amazing grace began to reverberate from the throats of thousands standing on the street before a mountain calling for it to come down. That mountain will come down. That mountain will come down. This is a seemingly, in our experience, insurmountable circumstance, is it not? 1973-ish, Roe v. Wade, 40-some years of this atrocity, this whole-scale genocide perpetrated on our land with the sanction of our own laws, codifying injustice by statute. When will this mountain come down? We ask ourselves. I submit to you 
in sackcloth and ashes, proverbially speaking, if Christians begin to gather in the street in tears and repentance and praise, that mountain won't stand long. Have we done that? Have we done that? Reports were that that was the largest gathering of its kind since in our local region since Roe v. Wade was enacted. If that was not a flash in the pan, I'm willing to suggest to you that that might be an application that we can uh, take from Matthew 21. If we repent of our sins, if we make a public display of our humility, if we preach the gospel as the only way to be delivered from blood guiltiness according to Psalm 51, and if we do so in faith, and if we do so in prayers without ceasing, we will see the kingdom come and the will of God be done on this earth as it is in heaven, even as he taught us to pray. This is the message that his disciples needed to hear because they were going to come across seemingly insurmountable circumstances in that first generation beyond anything we can fathom or imagine. And they would have thought if they considered only the things with their physical eyes and didn't walk by faith, that Christianity was going to be utterly eradicated and stamped out. It remains to this day. We are, testi- we are testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ takes mountains through the prayers of His saints and casts them into the sea. Certainly, the persecutions of the early church fall into that category, would they not? And so He will continue against our insurmountable circumstances today and the authority claims in this life, which exalt Himself above the knowledge of God, but we can take them into captivity through biblical prayer of faith and following faithfully and obediently His holy word. Thirdly, under narrative context, I believe there's a contextual key that is given to understand not only these two parables that follow this miracle of the cursing of the fig tree, but also the cursing of the fig tree itself. In Matthew 21, 43, let me read again these verses. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That message, that sobering message of judgment was preceded by a promise in verse 42. Have you never read the scriptures, Jesus asks the disciples? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. I've mentioned to you a concept in the past that there is continuity in the Gospels. I I labeled it, to sound smart, narrative imperative continuity. But what what I meant to convey by that is when we read the stories of the Gospel events and the teaching that Jesus brings, they complement one another. Don't forget that as you read the Gospels. It will be a great key to unlock more understanding, and that's some of what we're discovering today. Finally, and most briefly this morning, some of this we'll cover at greater length later, so I just want to touch on it. I want to take one more step back as we consider the covenantal context of fig tree, its significance, and the rest of Scripture. Turn with me to Jeremiah 24. In this great book of prophecy, you talk about insurmountable circumstances. You talk about the evidence of false authorities that would prove so discouraging. Jeremiah was called for such a time as this. And though he preached a message that in his experience during his lifetime was seldom heeded, almost never, and though he bore the scars of persecution in his own body, 
His words were nevertheless preserved for us. And among them we have Jeremiah 24, 1-8, and we read this, and it stirs our heart in faith that the Word of God knows what it's talking about. And Christ, when He uh, curses the fig tree, indeed, it is no accident. It says, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile the, uh, from Jerusalem, Jeconi, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold! Two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs, the good figs very good and the bad figs very bad, so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like those good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart." In the same spirit as this glorious promise and in the imagery of the prophet. If you hear these words and they resonate in your soul, you don't want to be a bad fig, that is to say. But you are jealous and zealous to be close to the Lord, to find your refuge in His Word, to pray in faith and without doubting that you may not be ineffective and unfruitful in the things of God. Then this message is this true for you and perhaps in some sense more so given the nature of revelation in Christ now for us as it was for the exiles who heard these words and hung on to them for dear life? The promise is I will give them a heart to know that I am God. This is the message of the fig tree in part when we consider it in greater scripture. The nature of fruit related to this biblical picture, picture of figs goes all the way back to Jeremiah and beyond. Second, in covenantal context, the, the uh, picture of vine and fig tree, every man under his vine and fig tree, uh, figs are the subject of either flourishing or judgment in Scripture. This is so helpful for our context. First Kings, just briefly for you, these will be listed um, on the website for further study later if you'd like to do a little bit closer looking into them. Vine and fig tree. In the days of Solomon, it was said of First Kings 4.25 that the prosperity... And the significance of that apex of, and glory of, naturally speaking, the Israeli kingdom had reached such a degree that every man sat under his vine and fig tree. What is the language there? It's kingdom language. It's prosperity. It's flourishing. It's fruitfulness. It's peace. It is the uh, living in this land where there is just rule and glorious uh, uh, interchange of relationship. And the social circumstances are set aright. Now we know from the testimony of Scripture that the kingdoms of old were representative and symbolic of a kingdom that will come, that is yet to come. Even as we know in Scripture, thy kingdom come and thy will be done is the heart cry. What is the heart cry of kingdom come though? It is for the vine and fig tree, if you will, to be restored for all. The messianic kingdom is referred to in Micah 4.4, declaring that there will come another king who will transcend Solomon, who will restore and surpass 
by exceeding measure the peace and prosperity, the flourishing that the nation experienced under his rule. Zechariah 3.10 says the same. There is also language of judgment, though, related to vine and fig tree. Psalm 105.33 testifies to the fact. Jeremiah 24, which we've already read, also 5.17. Joel 1-7, through the locusts are unleashed on the vine and the fig tree. Amos 4.9 is a record of the same. And so again, just to add some contextual weight, figs and fig trees and vines, both of which appear in our text, the greater part of our text today, are the subject of flourishing and judgment in the language of Scripture. And finally, let's consider this association of stone and mountain this morning. Turn to Daniel chapter 2. It's no accident, again, as we compare the weight of the larger text in Matthew 21, that Jesus uh, uses the imagery of a mountain as as an application to this language and significance of plantings. Again, in Matthew 21, as Jesus concludes his parable by application, He says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So it might appear at first that Jesus is mixing his metaphors here, but I submit to you that it is strategic. It foreshadows what will soon come in the text. Jesus will use, as we mentioned, two more vineyard parables, and then he will draw on this inanimate Uh, symbology, again, in verse 42, with reference to stone uh, and the like. It says in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So you see the connection here to a fruit-producing people for the kingdom and also the basis and the uh, unshakable nature of that kingdom as a cornerstone, it says in verse 44. And the one who falls in the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I submit to you that there is a consolidation of prophetic imagery uh, that Jesus is referring to, making reference to in these passages. Psalm 118, 22 directly comes to mind. Also, Isaiah 8, 14, and perhaps uh, by way of summary and in closing this morning, Daniel 2, 34 through 35. In Daniel chapter 2, there's a message that sounds, there is a, a message that is similar to the one that we see here. There's a dream that receives its interpretation from Daniel himself, and in speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and interpreting this dream, he says in verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, and all together were broken in pieces, and they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Remember the idol in the dream, the uh, statue, and the different kingdoms that represent, were represented by its constituent parts? Well, now we have a stone that dashes it, and the term is like chaff to the wind. You can see the imagery of powder would certainly be parallel. It says, but that stone that struck that image, uh, um, here in verse 35 as we continue to read, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled 
the whole earth. Later, in further explanation, verse 44, same chapter. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. In the context of Matthew 21, the imagery is saturated with Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Covenant language, prophecy, and New Covenant fulfillment. What first may appear to us as an incidental curiosity in the text, why does Jesus curse this tree when he's hungry? It later proves to us, as we look more closely, to be a virtual alarm and a siren in the hearing of the presumptuous spectator of Christ and Christianity. This is the language of salvation if you heed, but judgment if you deny. Matthew 3, 9 through 10. There's a prophecy that's coming forth from John the Baptist. And it's not a prophecy that sounds all warm and fuzzy, gentle and meek and mild. But it's a prophecy that carries with it authority to judge. It says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Later, this is in reference to Christ, his winnowing fork, verse 12, is in his hands. He will clear his threshing floor. Again, that language, recall from Daniel 2, and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist, sobering prophecy of Christ, is here spectacularly highlighted with Christ's power to fulfill on display in the cursing of the fig tree and in the subsequent proclamation. Here we have Christ as the second Adam demonstrating His authority and His intent to subdue and to tend His garden. And what is His garden? This entire universe and all history and every mountain will come into subjection and every enemy will be a footstool for His feet and this will be to the praise of His glorious name. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the message of Scripture that rings a clarion call to the redeemed soul to behold the majesty of Almighty God revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us, Lord Jesus, to marvel like the Pharisees did when they saw You curse the fig tree. Help us to be amazed let us be awestruck in wonder as we read these accounts where Nathaniel met a man who knew him before he met him, so to speak. I pray, Lord, that you would stir us to worship in light of your revelation here. Father, if there are areas of our life that are not in conformity to your lordship and rule, where we have acted in obstinance and ignorance of your great magnificent authority and truth, May this message move us to repentance. And finally, Lord, may this message, that is your scriptures, rightly divided, understood, valued, and proclaimed, 
May it go forth from the pulpits of this land and from the hearts of redeemed believers even beyond this place so that the world may see that there is a God and He will judge everyone. Every enemy will be subdued. And let them be subdued in repentance lest they be burned in the fires of hell. We thank you, Jesus, that you've ransomed us. And we thank you for showing us once again from your scriptures how amazing is the grace that purchased our soul on Calvary. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.